Hey, Icon and Bay City. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, this has been a weird week. So on Monday, I tested positive for COVID-19. And so uh, I have been locked in my house all week. And in fact, we are recording this sermon. I am in my living room. Paolo is outside in my front yard shooting video through my window. This is just what we do now. Uh, we make it work. So uh, it is good to be with you. It's actually great to be out of the basement. That's been the worst part of it so far. Uh, my symptoms have been very mild. It's been like kind of like a cold, uh, but I've been stuck in my basement now since uh, about Sunday. So I am so glad to be above ground uh, currently. So we are, uh, just to add to the weirdness of the moment, uh, preaching through uh, Sodom and Gomorrah today and that infamous story as we continue in our Father Abraham series through the book of Genesis. So uh, we've said this in a number of different ways so far, but I'll say it again. If you are a parent of a young kid, uh, we are dealing with uh, adult themes today. And even though my language won't be in any way explicit, uh, the, the story is. So uh, if you got young kids, I just encourage you, maybe, maybe put a movie on for them or something uh, that is slightly less interesting than this story is. So uh, let's jump in. We are in Genesis chapter 19. Again, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is this infamous story that I think is often uh, misunderstood a little bit because we focus on the wrong part of it. Um, but before we jump into the story, I want to give us just a little bit of an introduction to what is sin. Because I know that there are some of you out there who are not Christians or you have not grown up in the church. And, and maybe the idea of sin is a little bit foreign to you. And, and often, I think Christians and pastors uh, kind of talk about sin in a way that I'm not sure is entirely helpful. So we, we often talk about sin as if there are a list of rules. Right? And the Bible is basically just a long list of rules that tell us all the things that are bad and all the things that are good. And if we can just do all the things that are good and not do all the things that are bad, uh, that, uh, that we'll be okay. Right, And that somehow God looked down on his earth and went, okay, here are the bad things. I'm going to choose these things to be the bad things and these things to be the good things. And there's some amount of randomness that I think we feel about what are the bad things and why are these the bad things and these are the good things. And I think that is an altogether terrible way to think about sin. It is not the way the Bible talks about sin at all, even though there are rules, certainly rules and principles in the Bible uh, that, that we hear about and read about, that, that at the macro sense, the simplest way to think about sin is that God created the world to be a certain way. Like he, he is the creator. He is the maker of the world. And just the same way any creator, any maker um, makes an object or makes a tool or makes a program, builds a computer program or whatever it may be to function in certain ways, um, anytime um, that object or thing or program breaks down, right, or is used for reasons that it wasn't made for, uh, that is sin, right? That's how we think of sin. So when God created the world, he created it, and the Hebrew word is shalom, kind of perfect unity and harmony. It was all supposed to work together perfectly. 
right? So we talk about this all the time. Perfect relationship between God and creation, or excuse me, man and creation, between man and other men, and men and themselves, mankind and themselves. There's supposed to be perfect relationship, perfect harmony. So anytime that goes wrong, anytime that's disjointed, and we don't live together in perfect harmony, that's sin. Anytime we use God's creation, whether that's each other, ourselves, or the physical universe, for reasons that God didn't create it for, that's sin, right? So sin isn't a thing as much as it is the absence of a thing or the brokenness of a thing, the fracturing or perversion of a thing. Anytime we use God's world in a way that God didn't intend, that is what the Bible calls sin. Okay, so sin is what we're talking about today. In fact, the, the title of this message is Never Underestimate Sin. And we're going to talk about why we often do underestimate sin and how a story like this can actually be super helpful for us to kind of have eyes wide open on sin and its consequences. So let's jump right in. Genesis chapter 19 says the two angels, if you remember the last story, God and two angels came to Abram. They like hung out and had lunch together. And then God and Abram stuck around and they had a conversation where Abram like bartered him down. The two angels went down to Sodom. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot, Abraham's nephew, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread there. And they ate. So Lot's sitting at the gate to Sodom. These two men come up. It's not clear if he knows they're angels or not. Probably not at this point would be my guess. And he says, hey guys, you, you should come to, come to my house, right? And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. We'll stay in, this, in the town square. It was very normal during that time. Lot's like, no, I know these people. You should come to my house, right? Now remember, um, the, the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah was, was widespread at this point. In the previous chapter, God had said to Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah had been very great, right? And that basically God was going to check out to see if all of the outcry, all of the prayers, all of the wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth about how bad Sodom was, um, was actually true before he brought judgment. So the, the reputation is widespread. Lot knows these people. He's been living with them for years. So he sees these two visitors come. He's like, man, if these two dudes hang out in the town square, it is not going to go well for them. So you need to come stay at my house. And they do. Okay. So the story only gets crazier from there. Basically, Lot was right. Okay. Verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, this is a crazy moment and a, uh, a, a well-known part of the story, right? If you're not familiar with the Bible and the Old Testament in particular, whenever it says that somebody wants to know somebody else or they have known another person, it doesn't mean like they had coffee, right? And he heard their story and that's, you know, that all the men in the town have just come to hear, you know, like, who are these visitors? We're very curious and very social people. It's not what that means. It means that they want to know them 
physically or more to the point sexually okay so this is uh, a terrible terrible moment right and and illustrative of how bad things have devolved in Sodom now one of the things that I think gets missed in this story is we focus on this moment and it is often used uh, to condemn a particular kind of sin now let me be clear I don't think this story is about God's condemnation for homosexuality that's not what's happening here right like this if anything and excuse the extreme language but if anything this is just gang rape that's all this is that all of the men of the town young and old are coming to rape these two men that's what's happening right in fact the rest of the bible makes it pretty clear that the sin of sodom is more than just this moment first i would say Remember that when uh, God first came to Abraham in the previous chapter, none of this had happened. And God was already ready to bring a ton of wrath and judgment on Sodom. It said that their sin was very grave and their outcry was really strong. So God's judgment against Sodom has really nothing to do with this moment, or this is just another moment or another reason. In fact, the Bible in other places describes the sin of Sodom this way. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 through 50 uh, describes the sin of Sodom as pride, excess of food, and, and prosperous ease, but uh, who are pe people that didn't aid the needy and poor. They were super wealthy, but they didn't help the needy and the poor. Jude chapter, or verse 7 says uh, that sexual immorality and the pursuing of unnatural desire was the sin of Sodom, which is really general terms that no doubt include this moment, but are more broad than that even. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, says, uh, Peter says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, right? Like that they are just ungodly people. We'll get, we'll get back to that in a moment. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So again, Lot's lived there for years. Peter tells us that it was the sin day after day after day, that exposure to sin in Sodom that was what tormented Lot's soul. So yes, is this moment terrible? Absolutely. Is this moment sinful? Definitely. But is this moment a reason for us or a piece of evidence for us to go, well, see, the real sin of Sodom was homosexuality. Specifically, the way in which those people who advocate for uh, affirmation of homosexuality, this is not what they're affirming. This is not what they're advocating for. So um, listen, at ICON, we believe that homosexuality is not part of God's design and purpose. We believe that. And that's a, that's a topic for another day to, to build out more fully. But I would just say, this is not evidence for that. This is evidence for something deeply heinous that really no person would ever affirm or advocate for, right? And I would say it, it obscures the larger point. The larger point is that when you pull God out of the mix, things go bad quickly. So my first point for this message is that sin compounds, right? Once you pull God out, everything's on the table. 
right? Everything's on the table. Without, an, without God, there can be no objective morality, right? Without some external agent imposing upon uh, some sort of you know, group of people um, a, a moral standard, an objective moral standard, there can be no objective morality. And so what happens is, in a godless culture, a godless society like Sodom and Gomorrah, everything is on the table, right? So sin has a, has a way of compounding. It's not about one sin. It's about the fact that these people did not have God, did not have objective morality. Therefore, it was up for grabs and everything happened. So sin compounds on us once we have kind of uh, uh, agreed to or accepted one sin as okay for our lives. What happens is a whole bunch of other sins begin to follow. Because get this, Satan doesn't care how you sin. He doesn't. It doesn't matter to him how you sin. Lying, great. Cheating, great. Uh, whatever it is, whatever it is for you, whether it is too much drink, whether it's sexual immorality, whatever it is, Satan doesn't care. All he cares about is taking your eyes off God and moving your behavior, moving your life, moving your heart, moving your mind away from God, right? You see this in the, the lists of sins of Paul in the New Testament, right? So a bunch of different places, Paul will list a, a number of sins and they're so random, right? Like totally disconnected. In fact, this, this one in Galatians chapter five is a great example of this, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, now the works of the flesh, this is what the flesh wants, what the body wants, what our desires are. When you pull God out, what's left? He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, just throw that one in there, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's the common thread between those? Nothing except the rejection of God's purpose and will. Okay, So Satan's going to push you in whatever direction that he can push you that is going to push you away from God. There can be no objective morality where God is not a reality. Okay, so when we embrace a godless culture or worldview, then what happens is everything gets on the table and we can have lists where strife and jealousy are with orgies and drunkenness and that seems random, but it's all a part of what it means to be rejecting and rebelling against God. So number one, sin compounds. The story continues in verse six. It says, Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the angels, 
reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now, not only does sin compound, but sin corrupts. When sin infiltrates our hearts and minds, we don't think straight. The world becomes skewed and broken and perverted, and we don't see things as they ought to be seen. Namely, Lot here in this situation has these men rioting in his house, trying to take these two guests. And what does he do? He goes outside to try to calm the crowd by offering his young daughters. I mean, that's crazy. That is so disgusting and heinous. As a father of young daughters, I cannot even imagine making this decision. Lot's brain has been corrupted by his time in Sodom. That that seems like a good idea. That that seems like a fair trade, right? Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the corrupting nature of sin on our minds and hearts. He says this, it says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So often Gentiles were just used as an example of people who don't believe in God, right? So when you don't have God, then there, in Paul's language, you have a futility in your mind. There's a, there's a randomness, there's a corruption, there's a darkness to your mind. In fact, he says, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former, former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, right? So sin has this kind of corrupting nature to it. And you, you see it in this story where it's corrupted Lot's thinking. It's corrupted these men, this rioting group of men. Uh, it's corrupted their thinking that they think this is a good idea, right? And, and here's what often happens, right? When you pull God out of the picture and sin begins ruling in your heart, very quickly, you just begin to go, I want right? Like I have this desire within me. Therefore, there's, there's nothing to keep me from I want to I get, right? There's no, there, there's no hemming in. There's no filter there. There's no obstacle to overcome. There, there's no moral compass to guide your way. So whatever is in here, whatever desire you have simply becomes I want, therefore I get, right? Now, in our culture, I've noticed that we've taken even a step beyond that and gone, whatever I want, I get, and whatever I get is good, right? We've added this moral piece on the end, which is really interesting to me because I think it suggests the, the, the kind of irreplaceable moral desire in every person. Right, that, that we are fundamentally moral creatures, but we don't want some external morality. We don't want anyone else telling us what is good or bad. So we go, what I want, I should get, and whatever it is I want is also good, and you need to affirm whatever it is I want. So not only should I get it, but I need you to tell me it's good, right? Whatever it is I want. 
which is a, a, a kind of, a, I don't know, an illuminating thing about the nature of mankind that we can't not be moral, but we just want to be the ones that say what's moral. But see, what happens in this is there's a kind of a dehumanizing process, right? I picture these men at the door to Lot's house just groping at the door. They've been struck blind, but that hasn't stopped them. It says they groped so long and just beat at the door so long they wore themselves out, right? And I just picture a zombie movie, right? Whether it's uh, Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or whatever it is, is your kind of chosen zombie movie. Um, there's always a scene where the, the zombies have reached a wall and they just start kind of pawing at it and clawing at it. And then they start climbing over each other at it because they have desire, but they don't have brains. They don't have hearts. They don't have souls. They don't have spirit. There's nothing to kind of guide their behavior. It is simply, I want, I get, and I will climb over, scrape through, beat down whatever it is I want to get it. We see that picture here. And I think we see that all over the world where people are working and working and working and they don't care about the consequences. They don't care about what it's doing to them. They don't care about the, the implications of it. They just go, I want, therefore I get, and you'd better tell me it's okay. This is what happens. Our brains, our hearts, our minds get corrupted by sin when you take God out of the picture as we have seen here in Sodom. So one, sin compounds. Two, sin corrupts. Three, sin confuses. We'll continue in verse 12. It says, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, get up, Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. They thought he was joking. He says, get out of here. God's going to destroy this place. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Uncle Lot, you're crazy, man. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Now Lot's lingering. Lot's taking a long time, dragging his feet. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. So he sees this other city called Zoar. He goes, well, I'll just go there. Don't, don't make me go to the hills. He said to him, behold, the angel said, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive. Therefore, the name of this city was called Zoar. So, Lot and his family have been in Sodom long enough now that they have gotten dulled. They have been dulled to the sin that is around them. They see it, like they see how bad it's been and they see how bad it is. They see the wickedness, 
but they don't understand how extreme it is. And this happens to us all the time where whatever we're used to, we get used to and we get kind of dulled to. Whatever we're around long enough, we kind of just, be it becomes the norm for us, right? This is why it's so valuable to go outside of our culture or outside of our city into other cultures because not only do we get to experience those other cultures and see the ways of life that they've adopted, but it allows us to see our own culture more clearly, right? Because when we see somebody else do something different, we go, oh wow, man, I don't do that. They do that. I, I, I didn't even think about the fact that I don't do that, right? I, I, I had this experience a number of times. Anytime I travel, I experience this. But I, there was one time really uniquely that I remember I was part of this thing called pastor school and it was a, a kind of pastor training thing actually out in Wenatchee with my good friend, Josh. And, and it's a cohort of guys, maybe a dozen guys, and we're all talking about different things we do in ministry. And there's this one guy in the cohort who is in this tiny little Baptist church in Wenatchee. And, and his, the way in which he talked about ministry and the way he talked about evangelism in particular, he started weeping, talking about how he cared for the lost and how he would preach to the lost so that people would get saved. And he was so passionate and so, so meaningful to him. And I remember being on the other side of the room and I felt so convicted and I got super emotional realizing, man, my brain does not wake up thinking about the lost the way this guy does. I'm thinking about other things that maybe he's not thinking about. But when he talked about the lost, there was a passion, a, a, a drive there for their souls and, and an acknowledgement that without the gospel, they are so desperately lost. And man, it, it like snapped me out of some of the ways that I'd been thinking about ministry. It was such a meaningful time. I'll never forget it. And, and that, that is such an important thing for us because man, we can get dulled to sin so easily the way Lot and his family did. Right? His sons-in-law thought he was joking, like, why would God bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? This place isn't that bad. I mean, sure, these guys all tried to gang rape our guests, and sure, I offered my daughters for them, but I mean, this place isn't, I mean, that was a, that was a crazy night, right? Like, it's not usually like this, right? This story reminds me of a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It's one of the, I think, the most powerful, most convicting passages in the New Testament. Peter says this. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, here's what Peter's saying. He goes, you've been given everything you need, right? To, to experience life in Christ. You have been freed from sin. If you are a Christian, you have been freed from sin. I always think about it like a, like a cage, right? So before Christ, you were in a cage. You were locked in a cage. Uh, it's enslaved to sin. In Christ, that, that door has been unlocked. The lock has come off. The door to your cage has swung open. You are free from sin. And yet, many times, we choose to live in the cage anyway. 
right? We choose to live in that corrupted state that we have been freed from, but we have not walked out of. Now, some of us have, and some of us have for long periods of time. We get up and overjoyed to be free from sin. We come out of the cage and we live life in the actual freedom that Christ has earned for us. But then there are moments where we kind of creep back to what was normal. And we remember like, well, I know the cage wasn't comfortable, but I you know, had just found this one corner where I could kind of rest my head and it was kind of comfortable, but it was, you know, it was home. It was what I'm used to. It's what I've known. And this freedom is a little challenging. I don't know what to do with this freedom. And so we creep back into the cage that is slavery, but it's a comfortable slavery. And Peter here and the angels to Lot's family are saying, and I'm saying to you, get out, get out. The cage is death. The cage is killing you. The cage is restrictive. The cage has dulled you to its impact. You forgot that you were enslaved. Now you are willingly walking back into your cage, putting the shackle back around your ankle, that shackle of sin that is just holding you down. Christ has freed you. And yet we are often so dulled to the sinfulness around us that we are unwilling to walk in it. So, sin compounds, sin corrupts, sin confuses, and our story doesn't end here, but it gets so dark, I'm gonna let you read it for yourself, okay? So finish chapter 19 on your own, and I'm just gonna tell you this. Not only does sin uh, compound and corrupt and confuse, but my last point is sin never stops trying to kill you. I tried to come up with a fourth C, but I just thought, you know what? Let's go straight to the point here. Sin never stops trying to kill you. It doesn't, it doesn't want anything but bad for you. Satan hates you and wants to kill you. Sin is always trying to destroy you. Uh, John Owens, a famous Puritan preacher and writer, says it this way. says, the best believers who are certainly freed from the condemning power of sin, still need to make it their business to mortify the indwelling power of sin all their life, to kill, to mortify, to kill. Do you mortify the sin in your life? Do you make it your daily work? Always be at this work while you live. Don't miss a day from it. And hear this, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. You need to be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. For Lot's daughter, sin was all they had ever known, it's all they grew up with, and so it's all they knew to do. So as this story continued, they just continued to act out of that sinful behavior and sinful worldview, it's all they knew. They had a desire, they went to go get it, and they just went, this is what we do. I, this is what we want. This is what we get. So what do we do? We declare war on sin. Declare war on sin. Name it as the enemy that it is. And as any good pastor would, I've got an acronym for you. So when I say declare war, I mean you need to watch, assess, and repent. Watch, assess, and repent. Declare war on sin. Watch means recognize, 
the good and the evil that is around you. Look for the good. Hunt for the evil in your heart and in your life and root it out. Second, assess sin. And uh, man, I wish I had more time to talk about this part because this is really important. Sin has kind of two sources. One, within us, there is there are desires that need to be kept in check. There are internal root causes of our sin, reasons why we are pursuing sin on the inside. And then there are external catalysts for sin. Oftentimes, Christians just want to focus on the external catalyst. We go, well, we need to remove these things and have accountability and all this stuff and have all these restrictions on our lives. Sure, there are catalysts for sin, but those catalysts are simply poking at and triggering the brokenness inside of us. So when we assess, we need to assess, when we identify the sin, assess what is the root, what is in me that is driving me for it, towards it, and what are some external catalysts. So watch, assess, and then repent and believe the gospel. These are Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin turn to God's purpose for your life. Repent means to turn away, to believe the gospel, believe that the way God made this world is true and good and for your life. Now, one last thing I want to point out. In the, one of the passages in 2 Peter that I read before said, uh, referred to Lot as righteous Lot which seems crazy, right? It's like almost like Peter has never read this story because there's no way that we can look at a guy who literally tried to sell off his own daughters and call that man righteous, who again and again and again drug his feet, who chose to stay in Sodom in the first place. How can this man be called righteous? Because our righteousness with God has nothing to do with our behavior. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for us. So we can call, God can call Lot righteous because Lot's faith was in God. And so Christ's uh, uh, righteousness was imputed to him. Christ's righteousness is given to Lot the same way it's given to us. Oftentimes we get this so wrong where we think, okay, I got to get all my stuff in a row. I got to get all my behavior and I got to change them the way I think and the way I live so that God will love me. No, God loves you. Christ died for you. The cage is open. You have to change the way you live and change the way you think and change the way you talk and change the way you behave for your own life so that you can flourish and have joy and peace and goodness in your life. This is what Christ has saved you for that freedom. But he has called you righteous because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So declare war on sin, not so that God will love you. You can declare war on sin because Jesus has already won the war on sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you fought and you won the war on our behalf. We could never have won this war. We lose our battles every day. But Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the good and the sin in our lives. 
that you would give us the, the wisdom and discernment to assess what, man, what is the root? What is, where is the sin coming from? What, do, what is it that I desire that I'm reaching for something that is not of you? And what are the catalysts? What are those external things that are just making it worse that we are currently too weak to be around and give us the strength to eliminate those catalysts? And then Lord, most of all, that we would repent of our sin, own it, repent of it, turn away from it and turn to you and the way of life you have made us for. And I pray we would do these things by your power in Christ's name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.